It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates, as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day. It's a pleasure to have uh, to the show with us today, uh, Mr. Dennis Ballard. He uh, is with the University of Manitoba, and he's here to talk to us about a new program he has uh, launched uh, for Indigenous students. It's quite uh, quite an interesting idea to help produce Indigenous scientists, and they're going to be able to work within their own community as much as possible going through this process so that they can uh, still have that connection to their community and find out if there's ways to utilize what they're learning and implement it within their own communities as well. So, uh, Dennis, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, this is quite an interesting idea. So congratulations. And I guess uh, the name, the Wawate program, uh, came to you from your wife, I believe. Actually, she was working with an Indigenous committee. Oh, yeah. With an inter- actually an international indigenous committee, and they came up with the name prior to my joining on. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, was there anything else uh, prior to your joining on that that is interesting in the background? Because uh, as I read through, there was a there was a number of other professors, some retired people that were involved that wanted to give back, and and sounded like they were involved in this process as well. Yes, uh, Roger Dubay and Jerry, his wife Jerry Dubay, are both Sequoia fellows at the. Uh, ACES, ACES uh, American Indigenous Science and Engineering. Oh, yeah. Um, and there, uh, well, there were international scholars working with these committees who uh, developed, they came up with this uh, idea for the program. I didn't come on till July uh, 6th this summer, so a lot of catch up to do and a lot of work to get it started. For sure, but it, it's a really. Well, this is the this is the brainchild of our, our the faculty of science dean Steffi Baum too. She's Doctor Steffi Baum. Oh yeah. Uh, so uh, do you know why and how that came about? Actually, it started off with discussions with the with like I say with the international with the ACES pro. Mm-hmm. The, uh, Want to look for ways to incorporate indigenous knowledge of two what they, what's called two-eyed seeing into the uh, curriculum. Yeah, one of the, one of the aims of the program is to eventually have instructors teaching from a two-eyed seeing perspective in the classrooms. Right, which is uh, in collaboration be- with the students, and that's uh, being able to is the, is sort of the traditional view uh, and, and way of teaching prior to uh, European contact. Well, well, even prior to the uh, European method of education, because mm. even in Europe they had they had traditional knowledge systems, right? True enough. Yeah, they fell to the wayside once the. Uh, this model was produced and instituted in the 1800s. Hmm. 
Now I understand you're you're trying to implement this uh, next next fall next fall, but uh, as you say, you're doing some catch up. Uh, you're probably you're going to be going through the process of of uh, critiquing the, the potential students, and you're going to put them into a six week program, I believe, to to it's find a six week orientation with the aim of starting in uh, summer 2021. However, we have to see how that goes with the uh, COVID rollout. Too, yes. So. And I also understand that you you want to work with about 10 students. Yeah, we want to start with a smaller cohort this mm-hmm. time in order to uh, build up from there. And as the program evolves, the, uh, the students will become mentors for the new intakes as the years progress. Yeah. And then the idea of, of having uh, Indigenous scientists um, is, is sounds great, first of all. And them being able to work within their communities on whatever it is that they are studying um, and I believe there's a number of different areas uh, environment uh, 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 health those kind of things what, what are some of the areas that students might be looking at the water and water analysis mm. uh, animal husbandry fishing animals the, mm. the deer moose in the area forestry Succession. It's all. It's all related, and it's all areas that the First Nations have been interested in. And this will give them the opportunity for the students to lead the research on behalf of their communities. You know, in some ways, when I think about this, uh, we get the opportunity here on this show to talk with many different people. And sometimes we do talk with uh, educators, uh, people that are perhaps scientists that are working in different areas. And it always brings me back, especially when we're talking about the environment or or about uh, working, you know, with hand in hand with the planet. Uh, It always takes me back to thinking about traditional knowledge, traditional teaching indigenous knowledge and and i'm always surprised that we don't hear more about that kind of application being put into uh, the approach this sounds like it might be an opportunity for that kind of uh that kind of uh, traditional knowledge to be utilized alongside of western uh, education as well definitely if you compare the two the major component is the human content, mm. the hum, hum, human involvement, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. There's a, the Western concepts, what we call Western education teaches that, or Western science, they teach that uh, you isolate the components in order to study them. Mm. Whereas in among the indigenous, you have the, you have the human perspective, how man is involved in, the, in with the entire interaction in the environment. Yes, exactly. Separating himself from it and not including himself with it, observing it from afar, whereas the indigenous uh, thinking is to look at it from a holistic perspective, including the human uh, personality as well, like you just said. Right, exactly. So when you're doing studies on the environment and you exclude the the animals from the environment while studying the plants, that doesn't really give you a a full idea of the health of the plant, especially Mm. when it's the animals that feed off the plants absolutely yeah so 
you're going to go you're going to take the students through this 6 week orientation program and then and that's to help them actually i guess find out what it is that they might need to get them uh up to uh, par for for uh, uh, submitting into the into the uh the science program is that correct so if they are lacking some things that they might need uh yes, sir, that's part of our assessment yep. we'll be doing assessing them for their math science chemistry and biology skills mhm Right, and determine whether or not what type of upgrading. Some may be ready for direct entry, some may not. Yep. The other component of it is uh, to teach them entrepreneurial skills or uh, project management skills Yeah. in order to help them help shape their thinking processes and prepare them for academia or Western science, which is more process-oriented or, or linear thinking, right? Yeah, and you know, I really like that idea about uh, looking at it from that perspective—the entrepreneurial skills that they're going to need—and and, obviously, and 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 I think it's also great that you're looking at this from and and also coming from the idea that uh, these students uh, may have and and many of them may ha- be coming from small communities. They may not have those those mentors because parents uh, may not have either got the education. They might there might be re- uh, relationships with the the uh, residential school system uh, that, of course, we know how, how that damaged Indigenous uh, people, uh, even to be good parents um, from removing them from a household environment. So um, all of that rolled into this and looking at this, uh, I think it really is a wonderful way of, of being able to support the students as they as they get into this program. It's definitely, when you look, look at the enroll- history of enrollment in the universities of high dropout rate in the first year. Mm. It's, I think that's mainly due to a lack of social networks and mm. connection to their home, family, and community. Mm. It doesn't matter whether it's Indigenous or non-Indigenous communities, there's still a very high dropout rate. Mm. So by maintaining them as a close, as a nice close cohort, we maintain that social, we build that social network for them so they can, for the first year or two, and then as they progress, they'll expand that social network and succeed at the university. And then maintaining the, having them do research in their communities maintains that connection to their community, but it also can, creates a connection between the faculty of science and that community. Right. Something else, another aspect that uh, we want to develop yeah, it's 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 a wonderful two-way uh, sort of uh, opening or connection that that you'll have going on there. Now, you say you're going to start with around ten students, as we said, a small cohort of of, of students, which makes a whole lot of sense as well. Um, what kind of interest have you had so far since this was announced? Well, the people I've been speaking to, they've they've had uh, they're very interested, especially with the research component. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff that they, the uh, chief and councils need to do, and this is, this is uh, creates an avenue for them to to see that through and and have a direct link through their students. Right, and and I I noticed that uh, in going through the process that y- you guys re- did reach out to the communities, you did reach out to chief and council, you did reach out to other people in the communities, the education authorities, some yeah, education authorities, yeah. And and I guess uh, it, it all it all sounded positive to them. Yeah. So we we didn't do a blanket uh, approach yet because mm. this is still we're still in uh, planning and development stage. Mm-hmm. So I did a small sample. 
Right, and and the University of Manitoba has, uh, I understand, quite a large uh, population of Indigenous students to begin with. But this is open to to uh, Indigenous students from any community across the country, I guess, as long as they're at uh, the the University of Manitoba. Yeah, I think one of the main aspects of this is that it's got to be a person to in person Mm. program. I don't see how. It could work remotely, but I don't see how I don't see the students actually fully benefiting from it right. remotely. Yeah, I so can. I, I say we'll have to wait to see how COVID rolls out yeah. in the summer before we roll out the program. Now, what are you thinking in terms of that? Because although we are seeing some signs of the vaccines now rolling out across the country, it's still going to take some time to do that. So if you're not able to start the program uh, as you would like in September or the summer, as you mentioned, uh, what will be the backup plan? Actually, I haven't gotten to that point yet. We're still planning on working towards a summer summer rollout mm. like i see it's under development yep. so we're we're not uh at that stage yet we don't have we don't have any students per se right but we have all we have is interest so far which is good place to start right there it's a good place to start <laughs> yeah um, there's also a lot of research institutes too that would uh be interested in utilizing the students as uh leads for community engagement and research. So there's interest from all areas. Hmm. As far as uh, planning for what happens if we can't roll out, that'll have to depend on the on the faculty. Right. Oh, and that's the other side of this, is is that the, the faculty themselves, I understand, um, will also be participating or or getting involved with the program? Other members? Definitely. The first uh, year or two, they'll be. I want to engage them in research. However, that'll have to be as co-curricular. But the faculty will have to be engaged in order to help direct that research and act as mentors. Mm. Uh, yeah, it all sounds sounds very interesting. Um, what do you hope that the students will come away with at the end of this? Where, where do you th- where do you think their expertise might be utilized? I think their expertise will be utilized in all fields, in every field that they they uh, try, whether it be computer science, even astronomy. Mm. If with their skills in uh, entrepreneurship training, and then that, that gives them a step up as far as employability right off the bat. You now they they utilize those skills to to develop the tools given to them by the faculty of science, and their employability is by far greater than than normally would be expected if they develop slowly. So it depends on the student input as well. Right. Um, you know, as I think through this, Dennis, the more I think about this, it, it, it seems to me that this, the Faculty of Science at the University of Manitoba is, is opening up something that could potentially uh, help help and, and show, the, show the, the incredible knowledge that... 
uh, the other side, you know, not from the from the Western side, but from the indigenous side and the knowledge that has been handed down for generations and millennia through uh, indigenous uh, oral tradition and just being and living on the land and the, and the wonderful, wonderful knowledge and wisdom that comes that has come through that knowledge. Uh, I think this is a way for uh, hopefully for the, the Western and for the university to start uh, appreciating and uh, perhaps utilizing and looking at indigenous uh, science, if you want to call it that, um, and and Definitely utilizing science. it more. Well, for sure, and I think that was the uh, that was a direction that Dr. Steffi Baum and uh, Dr. Roger Debay had uh, initiated this from. Mm. Their, their great insight led to this, the development of this program. Mm. I think that was the perspective that they had uh, viewed it from. Right. Yeah, and Dennis, um, you are from the Opasquiac First uh, Cree Nation, I believe? Yeah. And and your wife is, is also Indigenous. Are, are you both from the same community? No, she's from the Lake St. Martin First Nation in the Interlake. Oh, yeah. She's Ojibwe and I'm Cree, mm. kind of an interracial marriage. <laughs> right. Um, uh, well, that's wonderful, and, and congratulations on this, and we, we certainly wish you all the best with this program because it sounds great. I can't wait to uh, to hear more about this. We hope to be able to touch base with you in the future because uh, we'd really like to see how this is rolling out and, and the benefits that you're providing to the students, and you know, maybe once the students get enrolled with this program, uh, we can touch base with you and maybe get some of those students uh, on our show to, to hear for their perspective on this as well. That would be fantastic. I'm really excited that they're taking this initiative to, especially from this perspective. Yeah. It's been something that's been uh, long overdue. Like you mentioned earlier in the program, there are a lot of impacts on the First Nations, Indigenous populations in Canada due to various activities from mm. well, well-intentioned governments right mm. so now this is like a, a possibility for learning from each other yeah uh, and I really like that idea about the two-eyed seeing, um, you know, again, a very holistic approach uh, and, and being able to uh, create uh, some indigenous uh, scientists out of this program. It's, it's a wonderful idea. Is there anything else you can think of, Dennis, that we haven't touched on that you feel is important to mention? No, other than the fact that there's a private private funding organizations too that are showing a great interest in work collaborating with us. Like we, one, one person I'd like to shout out to is uh, Tony Williams from the mm. Verna Kirkness Education Foundation. He's been a great help and inspiration too. Mm-hmm. I spoke to him, had a chance to speak to him while in the early stages of development and he's just been a great help. Right. Uh, Dennis, if people are listening here, students uh, sound uh, interested and they want to find out more, what, what can they do? Where can they go to find out more about uh, possibly enrolling? They can contact me directly at dennis.ballard at umanitoba.ca. Okay. Is there anything on... Uh, right now with the COVID, I'm, I'm out of office because there's uh, really no okay. reason to be there. There's nobody at the university. <laughs> yeah, but, right. Like, check my, I have, by giving out my direct email... Or even phoning the number. Yep. At the email, then they'll be able to find. They'll be able to contact me. 
And, and is there uh, is there any information do you know online at the university uh, website that that will also give them some some information on this as well? Yeah, they should be able to research Wawate program project over at uh, on the University of Manitoba website and Great. have access to the information there. We should. I just recently helped worked with the department to uh, develop the website, and mm-hmm. it should be up and running. Fabulous. If not, it'll be up very, very shortly. That's great. Dennis, congratulations on this. We wish you all the best with it, and we really look forward to touching base with you and, you know, some, poten- some potential students in the future so that uh, we can hear back about this wonderful idea at the University of Manitoba and the Faculty of Science uh, trying to incorporate Indigenous students into the science program and create scientists out of this that could work w- within their own community and, of course, expand. Um, you know, there's, there's other benefits I can think of, as, as you guys already have pointed out, uh, about this program, it it can help them uh, look beyond and, and look to a, a larger world that they might be able to involve themselves in. Definitely, that's one of the hopes of the, having the uh, project management training, entrepreneurial skills training, is that mm-hmm. it opens their eyes to not only working for the community in the community, but anywhere in the world, really. Right. And Dennis, I'm sorry I don't have this in front of me, but what are, are you? Are you a professor uh, of science? No, I'm just a contract. Oh, well, I'm, I'm a full-time employee, but I was hired to develop this program. Right. Okay. Well, that's... My, my background is in environmental health and education. Oh yeah. Research. Great. Well, Dennis, uh, congratulations once again, and we thank you for taking the time to join us on the show, and we wish you all the best uh, with this program and, uh, and, and for the students uh, in the future for the University of Manitoba and the Faculty of Science with the Wawate program. Thank you very much. Yeah, Chimigwech uh, and Nawagoa for taking the time to join us, and, and we look forward to talking with you again. Thank you. Bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. That's the voice of Dennis Ballard. He is the organizer for the Wawate program that is being set up through the University of Manitoba and the Faculty of Science. They are trying and they are implementing this program for Indigenous students from anywhere across the country, if they're Indigenous, but enrolled at the University of Manitoba, for them to start learning and incorporating alongside of westernized science application, Indigenous science application. A wonderful idea to be able to incorporate all of these things and, uh, and and bring out some indigenous scientists at the end of the program. Great idea. That's this part of the program. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And just as a reminder, you can also listen to Moment of Truth on your favorite podcasting uh, streaming sites as well. So you're able to go back and listen to an interview or a conversation you may have missed and uh, listen at your leisure. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show 
Melanie Chokas Bradley. She is a naturalist and certified forest therapy guide who leads nature and forest bathing. Forest bathing, don't you just love that name? Uh, walks for many organizations in the Washington, D.C. area and the American West. Well, Melanie, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, David. I'm, I'm so happy to be talking with you today on this winter day. <laughs> well, you know, um, when I say Washington, D.C., of course, something else comes to mind, given the time frame that we're dealing with and what you guys have been dealing with in that region. Sure, yes, it's, it's been a really rough time here in Washington. I, I know it's been a rough time all over because mm-hmm. of the pandemic and all kinds of other issues. Yes. It's um, un- but this has been an especially traumatic week here yeah. in Washington. And so how, how would you say leading into this, because what we're talking about is the importance of enjoying nature during the pandemic. But, you know, nature has value, uh, you know, even beyond the pandemic. But, but like you said, uh, it's something that we can at least go to, enjoy, turn to for uh, solitary walks. We can, you know, we can do so many things with nature, uh, especially in this time when we're, we're being restricted from going so many places because of the COVID-19. And it makes me think of also reflecting on what you guys have been dealing with, you know, in, in Washington and, and you know, every all parts south of the border here from Canada and into the States. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of re- reflecting going on. There's a lot of thinking going on with, with what has been happening. So I'm sure nature has, has value in that area as well. It absolutely does, David. I think any time that you're hurting, that you're um, dealing with difficult realities, or if you've just spent too much time looking at screens, which mm. so many many of us have done lately, getting out in nature is the most healing and rejuvenating thing. If you can just walk out your door, and, and if you're in the city, mm. um, tune into the, the beauty and wonder around you, whether it's a, a tree outside your door, the birds, the clouds, Connect with nature wherever you can, and it's incredibly soothing and inspiring. And, you know, I think one um, kind of silver lining of the the pandemic is that because we've all been forced to spend so much time at home, we've learned to connect with our own wild homes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like I know that I have really connected with my backyard and the trees out along the street and the birds, and I've just been really tuned in to all of the um, animals that live here with us sure. and um, and in a, in a new and deeper way. And I think a lot of people have had that experience during this time. We've had time to slow down. Our skies are clearer and cleaner and quieter. Mm-hmm. And that really invites, um, you know, the kind of reflection in nature that is really rejuvenating. It certainly is. I'm glad you brought up all of those points, and I'd like to expand on all of them. You know, initially, when you said, well, this goes back to a book that uh, I was sent, because it's a book that you you wrote. You were asked, uh, it's actually part of a collection of books, I believe. Uh, Yours is Connecting with Nature in a Time of Crisis, and I guess it's part of this resilience series that uh, you were asked to participate in. Yes. And um, my friend Tim Ward, who I believe is from Toronto, mm. um, is, is the publisher of this series of resilience books. And yes, my book is uh, Resilience, Connecting with Nature in a Time of Crisis. And um, he invited 10 of his authors at Changemakers Books to write, you know, at a very tight deadline in the mm. spring. We had 
you know, about six weeks to complete our books. Right. So 10 authors wrote books about um, how we can be resilient during this time. Mm-hmm. And mine was about, you know, how we can connect with nature um, to help us be resilient. And so with that, one of the things you, you talked about in terms of, you know, becoming familiar with your wild uh, home, and in particular, I'm glad you pointed out the the fact that uh, there is city, city dwelling and there's uh, country dwelling. A lot of what I read in the book makes it, it appear like there's a lot of open space, you're on farms, there's lots of open areas, lots of, you know, uh, nature around, which is wonderful. I grew up in the country when I was a kid, so I know exactly what that's like and it, you know that, that, what what came to mind was that old saying right you can take the the boy out of the country but you can't take the country out of the boy and and yeah. anyone anyone that has has been raised with that uh it's very true uh because uh, you know, all of uh, that was such a wonderful, wonderful experience. You think about, you know, some of the things that you refer to in the book as a, as a child, um, you know, uh, being fascinated by a worm or a, or a bug or something going across the earth yeah. or playing in the earth, in the earth and, and all of those very simple things. But the world, because of COVID, has forced us back to a simpler you know, sort of standstill moment for a minute, and and it's a way, and and in in a way, it, it's a, allowing us to focus on those simpler things. And I guess if you've got kids, it's even a better way for you to to re yes. uh, explore the world with them, because there's nothing better than seeing the world through the eyes of a child when you're re-exploring those wonderful simple things with them, right? That is so true. I think the the most therapeutic thing we can do right now is to follow our young children around. And, and see the world, experience the world in a very hands-on way, the way they do. Mm. Um, I am also a country girl. I grew up in Vermont. Mm. And I, you know, I started, I had a lot of freedom as a child. And I, I wandered through the woods and the fields, even from the age of five. Yep. I would disappear for hours at a time. And <laughs> I really learned how to connect with nature in that very direct, personal way. Mm-hmm. Now I live in the city. Now I do live in Washington, D.C., which has beautiful parkland. I'm mm. near Rock Creek Park. I've written a book about Rock Creek Park. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also written a book. My most recent book is Finding Solace at Theodore Roosevelt Island, mm-hmm. an island in the middle of the Potomac River that is in Washington. It's a mm. mile and a half from the White House, and it's a, it's a wild island, mm. um, part of the National Park Service. We're going to talk a little bit about the book, the chapters that you have and some of the things that you talk about. Mindfulness, I guess we're talking about mindfulness to some degree. The pandemic did make the world slow down uh, and made a, made us stop. And I'm glad you pointed out in the book a couple of things. One, uh, the very fact that the world is getting a breather. Mother Earth is getting a breather because of the pace that we were going at and the nonstop that was happening and uh, and all the pollutants we were putting into the air. We've heard about all the stories about how the air is cleaned up in cities and and uh, I think Venice, all the rivers cleaned up. People could see the bottom of the the, the passages in you know in in the city of Venice uh, that hadn't happened in I don't know how long. Uh, I know so it's amazing. It really is. And so to to think that we weren't having an impact is definitely 
really, you know, front and center for us. And I'm glad you also mentioned back to the indigenous people of North America. And some people have equated North America uh, prior to contact as a Garden of Eden. And it, and it's, I guess in some ways, it's too bad that wasn't an opportunity to uh, approach things differently. You know, a lot of indigenous people are, are fighting for the very things that the earth is now benefiting from, right? The the breathing from us and, and being able to rejuvenate itself to some degree. David, you spoke so beautifully and 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 I could not agree with you more about the way um, indigenous people appreciated every single beautiful thing here on do you call North America Turtle mm-hmm. Island and in, in um, indigenous yeah. cultures? Is that, is that what you call is that then yeah um, and I do think that there's a tremendous hunger to know more about mm. um, about those mm. ways, which are not lost. They are not lost. And, you know, we have we've had a very traumatic time here in um, the U.S., but um, we have a mm. poet laureate, um, Joy Harjo, who is the first Native American um, poet poet laureate we've ever had in this country. And I think she's in her third term now. She's an incredible poet. And um, uh, uh, President-elect Biden has nominated Mm. um, Mm -hmm. Deb Holland from New Mexico, Mm -hmm. um, you know, from the Laguna Pueblo um, to be the Secretary of the Interior here. And that is so significant because... The uh, Department of the Interior in the U.S. administers all of the national parkland in this country, which is a considerable amount of land. And um, and it's land that, you know, in many cases was painfully taken. And um, and I, you know, I just take um, such comfort in knowing that they are here, you know, in these positions where they can really have a voice and make a difference. And, and I feel that people are so receptive now. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that we have been forced to slow down helps us to see the world, you know, the way that ancient people mm-hmm. saw it and the way that Very so true. many still do. You know, going back to your book, when you were talking about that being restricted or not being able to go outside, uh, it made me think of one of the things you referred to, and, and by no means uh, do I want to uh, belittle the the situation that Anne Frank uh, lived in, uh, but you did point out about her situation and, you know, not being able to go outside and just being able to look through the skylight and, and see the tree and focus on the tree and finding, you know, that that ability to, to just connect somehow. And, and I guess the imagination comes into a, a strong use at that point as well it does yes Anne Frank Mm -hmm. was confined to that tiny annex and I think most people know her story she died at Bergen Belsen Mm -hmm. concentration camp at the age of 15 but she could see this horse chestnut tree outside Mm -hmm. her window and it really gave her hope Um, and and the tree lived into the 21st century so it lived long after she she did and, um, and then they propagated um, from the tree um, several trees, mm. and one of them is planted on the U.S. Capitol mm. grounds in her honor. Um, and um, there's a plaque in front of it, and they quote her as saying, I, I won't get it quite right, but it's something like, um, no one need wait. Mm. Start right now to improve the world. 
Um, and I have just posted a blog on my website about the trees around the U.S. Capitol and what they can tell us. And that is one of the trees that I write about in my blog post. It just went live this morning. I can send you the link. I don't know um, if you have the ability to share that. Yeah, with your go ahead. Listeners. I was just going to say you mentioned um, the website, also, so if people mm-hmm. people can go to your website, it's melaniechokas-bradley.com, and you can find out more about what Melanie is talking about. Sorry. Yeah, and and also, so I what I did was I lead tours mm-hmm. of of the trees around the Capitol um, in non-COVID times, several times a year for the U.S. Botanic Garden, and um, so I, I wanted people to know. Um, you know, that there are these trees surrounding this painful incident. And now the whole grounds, which have been open to the public, you know, almost all the time, you know, during our history, mm. are now totally fenced off. But there are all of these beautiful trees there. Mm-hmm. Some of them are well over 100 years old. There is a giant sequoia that was planted by the Cherokee Nation in uh, the 1960s at, around mm-hmm. the bicentennial of the birth of sequoia. And I, I write about that tree. I write about a tree that was planted in, in honor of Emmett Till, who is a 14-year-old um, African-American boy who was brutally murdered in the 1950s and in Mississippi and his body thrown into the Tallahatchie River. And that helped to galvanize the civil rights movement here in um, the U.S. And I, I write about that tree. And then I write about a tree that came down in the 1970s. It had um, Dutch elm disease. It was known as the humility elm because it, it's, it, was, it stood between the Capitol and the office buildings where the senators work. And when they went to the Capitol, they had to duck under this, this big branch that went over the mm-hmm. sidewalk. So it was known as the humility elm. Mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. President Kennedy actually gave it that name. So... <laughs> That tree is long gone, but I wrote about the memory of that, too. And I just wanted people to kind of be aware of the fact that uh, this building Mm. where this horrid thing happened last week, this just really tragic, frightening, unthinkable thing. Um, The building is surrounded by beautiful trees, and many of them have stories connected to, you know, really significant people. That's interesting, you know, and it's true. I I like also how you talk about uh, when you're, you're going on your, uh, your, your, your bathe in the forest that, uh, and different things you can do, you know, unplugging yourself, uh, making sure you leave your phone either turned off or, or not even take it with you. Um, You know, getting in, in touch with the smells and the touches and, and those experiences that can really help you just rejuvenate and, and, and calm and, and hearing the senses of, of all the sounds that you would hear in the, in the, the woods, you know, just the rustling of the, of the leaves and all of those wonderful things that I find, I don't know about anybody else, I find them absolutely wonderful and just a way of just, just taking me right down to a, a very, very calm place and a place that I can focus and start again. And, um, and then, you, of course, you talk about walking, going through that experience and then uh, getting yourself to slowly come back into uh, the present in terms of, you know, getting back into your daily life and what you have to do. I also like how the book touches on, you know, 
how how this is uh, some people view what is going on as a way of nature sort of striking back and, and I'm glad you you do mention that uh, because we I have heard of a number of people talking about that um, but I also like how you talk about you know just uh, I'm looking I read this book and, and and you talk about literature and that tie-in with nature as well you know, when you were talking about mm. experiencing mm. nature through all the senses, you know, unplugging your phone and then you're, <laughs> yeah, I, I was walking with you through through the woods while you were talking. You expressed that so beautifully. And, you know, I had a little epiphany a couple of years ago. I was sitting, I have this rock mm. um, that I call the meditation rock. It's um, mm. It's next to Rock Creek. It's kind of in the creek. And, you know, I go and sit on this rock and... I realized I would never think of time Mm. sitting on that rock as wasted time. I would never think of watching the clouds as wasted time. But I can spend five hours at my computer (laughs) getting all sorts of industrious things done and feel like, oh, I just wasted five hours. You know, So I think that, you know, people are discovering, and, and I've discovered this so much on forest bathing walks. Cause, and do you think your listeners know what forest bathing is that it's not <laughs> unless, you know, unless you want bath to, Unless you want to turn it into one. Right? Although you can swim. <laughs> unless you, absolutely. And uh, you're very lucky if you're in a place where you can. But, but really, it, the forest bathing, it's a translation of a um, Japanese phrase, shindinyoku, which which is pretty, pretty literally translated mm-hmm. as forest bathing or forest bath. And um, you just immerse yourself in beauty and you become fully present. And I think a lot of people mm-hmm. have gravitated toward mindfulness practices with the desire to become fully present. I think being in nature helps you to be fully present almost more I could, than anything yeah, else. I, I know agree it does. More. I, I'm, I'm right there with and, you. And, and, yeah, uh, I think I've been doing it for so long that I forgot that that's what it was. It's just second nature to me. Yeah, me too. And I feel like when I first heard that phrase, forest bathing, it resonated with me right away. And I realized, oh, this is what I've been doing all my life. It's very nice to have a frame for it. It's, it's, a, it's a very nice phrase to frame the experience. But, you know, I, I live in Washington, which is a pretty conservative mm-hmm. place. I don't mean conservative politically, but... You know, it's not like a wild and crazy bohemian place by any means. And when I first started, I had been leading nature walks for many years. I've been a Mm. nature writer. I've I've written seven nature books. Um, And I've been leading nature walks for many, many years and teaching people about trees and wildflowers and, you know, Theodore Roosevelt Island, Sugarloaf Mountain nearby, um, helping people connect and learn. And you know, I realized somewhere along the line that my favorite moments on those walks were not when we were talking about a tree and, you know, talking about its buds and leaves, although that's all wonderful. It was a moment when it was it was the moments when everybody grew quiet because they mm. felt such reverence for the beauty of the moment, whether it was, you know, a whole um, field of wildflowers a bird suddenly landing in a tree right in front of us, whatever it was, whatever natural occurrence that we experienced collectively mm-hmm. that caused us to be mm-hmm. silent, those were the moments I loved the most. And when you're on a forest bathing walk, whether you are on your own solo, and I do help you, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
do your own solo uh, forest bathing walk, although I'm sure a lot of your <laughs> listeners are already forest bathers, although they may not call it that. Um, but um, the whole idea is to really slow down mm-hmm. and, and be quiet, <laughs> you know, experience. <laughs> That's right. You know, stop talking. Um, let, and then, let the you know, nature, when we do let the, the collective do walks, the we have those. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and, and all the sounds in nature are, are so healing. And, and when we're doing group walks, um, we go off, you know, I'll give, or, you know, and other guides too, we'll give simple invitations to people. Like we might say, um, spend the next few mm-hmm. minutes noticing what's in motion. And just the simple act of focusing your mind totally on what's in motion is so powerful. And then, you know, we'll, we'll go off and do those things on our own. And then we come back together and we share what we've experienced. And then when you hear what other people have experienced, it just totally expands your own horizon. It's, it's really magical. The combination of the solo and the collective. Mm. And I have been doing this a bit online as well. I'm going to be doing a walk. I can't remember what when it is. Not a walk, a forest bathing experience mm. online mm. for Smithsonian Associates. I think it's in March. Um, and I, I, you know, and that can be powerful too because we'll have people from all over the continent who are fully present in wherever they are, and then they share it. And you know, if you're if you're in Maryland and you hear somebody has just watched a great blue heron in Colorado. You're right there with them. And it's really quite magical. Melanie, we're going to have to leave it there, but it's been a pleasure having you on the show and speaking with you about uh, nature and about how to enjoy and connect with nature in a time of crisis, uh, which is the name of this book I'm holding. And, uh, and, and it's so nice to, you know, just to reflect uh, because I was enjoying and I was back in nature while we were doing it uh, in many of the times when we were discussing this. So I want to thank you very much for putting this book together and being part of this uh, series of books that have come out around this uh, I, I guess uh, uh, one of the books that came out around this idea and uh, I wish you all the best in the future and uh, I look forward to possibly having you back on the show again Thank you so much David and I feel like our conversation was was for me it was <laughs> it was a, it was a forest bathing experience <laughs> I really enjoyed it you're so eloquent and and you clearly feel that deep connection with well thank the beauty and wonder of nature. Oh, thank you. That's it, it very comes nice to hear. All of well, your listen, words. all the best to you, and uh, we're thinking of you down there, and uh, and and looking forward to better things in 2021 for all of us, and uh, for all of you south of the border uh, down there in the U.S. You're very welcome. Take care. Thank you so much, David. Bye bye. That's the voice of Melanie Chokas Bradley. She is a naturalist and a certified forest therapy guide who leads nature and forest bathing walks for many organizations in Washington, D.C. and the American West. And I've been speaking to her about her book. It's called Connecting with Nature in a Time of Crisis. If you want to find out more about Melanie Chokas Bradley, you can find out by going to her website. And it is MelanieChokas-Bradley.com. That is M-E-L. A-N-I-E-C-H-O-U-K-A-S hyphen B-R-A-D-L-E-Y dot com. That's this part of the program. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. 
Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also listen on your favorite podcasting platforms or our Element FM website. Well, the University of Toronto is getting some new Indigenous digs. Shannon Simpson is the Director of Indigenous Initiatives and Co-Chair of the Indigenous Landscape Project at the University of Toronto. And she's also a member of the Alderville First Nation. And she joins us here on Moment of Truth. Shannon, welcome to the show. Ani, thank you for having me. Very glad you could join us. Now, as the Director of Indigenous Initiatives, how long have you held that role? I have been in this role. It still feels very, very new, but it's coming on almost a year. I came into the role in the middle of January, so I had about almost two months before the world flipped upside down and we all went home. Um, That being said, I've been working at U of T for about 17-ish years, so the majority of that was at First Nations House at the Indigenous Student Services, so I was there for a very long time. I did a few other roles at the institution, but primarily I was at First Nations House, so the role is new to me, but the institution and and Indigenous happenings, um, which is not what we call them, but (laughs) that is, uh, was less new to me, but definitely the role and what my job now is carved out to be is different and co-chair of the indigenous landscape project is that also through the university of toronto that is great so what can you tell us about the indigenous landscape project so that is and i will try and nutshell it essentially um around uh, 2016 when the trc recommendations came out u of t did a, a lengthy and highly collaborative response to the TRC recommendations and developed our own 34 calls to action. One of those calls to action, one of the main ones was about Indigenous spaces on campus. At the same time this was coming to fruition, um, U of T was planning a huge landscape project on their front campus. So that whole space um, in front of uh, University College, the whole major green space at U of T is being transformed. So this ended up being kind of tied into that project um, in terms of Indigenous space and, and there being a need for a lot more Indigenous space at U of T. So the committee was struck. We engaged with Indigenous staff, students, faculty, elders, community, um, the hosts of the land, the Wend at the Seneca, the Mississaugas were all brought in and involved in the project. And we have been working diligently for a couple of years now to try and put probably more than you could ever imagine into one outdoor space. So we've had to kind of remind ourselves that this is just a beginning. It's the the most, it's not the only outdoor Indigenous space on campus, but it was, it's definitely going to be the most significant space. Um, so we are trying not to necessarily cram everything we dream about into it, but think of it as a starting point because there will definitely be growth in more Indigenous spaces on campus. There's tiny forests with buildings built around them. Like it's, there's so many little nooks and interesting spaces, which I think are so important, 
for all students, but especially Indigenous students. My office is tri-campus, so we have very different experiences on the Mississauga and Scarborough campuses at U of T that have deer running around and streams running through them and <laughs> forests and and so much there's so much alive on those campuses that I think uh, on St. George campus where this project is we really find these spots and embrace them. And where will it be located on St. George campus? So the space is there is a big green space in front of Hart House which is a significant landmark on campus and it is over 50% of the green space in front of Hart House is um, will be this project. Some of the things on that space were uh, some cannons and the flags are being, I'm not even sure if the flags are being relocated, but they will be removed because this is very much an Indigenous space. So anything that other than the actual land that was there and the trees will be removed, relocated or placed um, in storage. So they will go to a new home. We've specified just wherever their new home is, make sure they're not pointing towards the garden. <laughs> it's a significant landscape. And I think that not being someone that attended U of T as a student, but I have been there for a very long time. And I want Indigenous students to be able to walk around campus and see Indigenous spaces, not have to seek them out or find them in small offices or spaces elsewhere. I want it to be a very obvious Indigenous space where ceremony can happen, teachings can happen, Indigenous plants are growing. It's a meaningful space. Did you do much collaboration with Joseph Pitawatakwat? Joseph Pitawatakwat has been um, involved. So we did a call out to um, for an architecture firm to kind of take the lead on this project. So Brooks McElroy um, is who we've been working with. And they're um, the lead Indigenous architect we're working with is Ryan Gorey, who's from the Thunder Bay area. He's Nishnabe, and he's been fantastic um, in leading this project and working with Joseph and working with our elders circle and working with um, just ensuring that we're listening to the voices of the Indigenous community. You, as I'm sure you know, there's definite host territories of this land, but there's it's also Toronto and there's a lot of different nations here. So trying to find ways to represent our host nations that are here as well as make sure Indigenous people from many, many nations across Turtle Island and beyond feel represented in some way here. I mean, this is what I talk about when we're trying to cram so much into the project. <laughs> so we're like, we need to represent everyone. Um, and that's not always possible, but there are things like fire and there are things like water and there are things that go across many, many different nations. So those elements are very present and very much featured elements of the, of the project. I, I know it could be different and it could be different things, but I just feel like it, the space has done a good job at being that home away from home. And there's big things coming for First Nations says too, but that's probably another conversation. Right. Um, so has this been consuming most of your time? So I still work closely with them. Obviously, First Nations House is a big part of this project. That's the Indigenous Student Services. That's where we want Indigenous students to use the space. We want Indigenous faculty to do um, teaching in this space. 
elders, knowledge keepers, traditional teachers, we want to be using this space, as well as we want Indigenous students to be able to wander over here and eat their lunch in an Indigenous space on campus. We want a lot of things to happen in this space. So, um, and I think it will. It's, it's central. It's prominent. Um, I never want to forget the first outdoor Indigenous space, which was the Indigenous Student Association Garden beside Hard House, which has its benefits as well. But I mean, this... <coughs> space will be prominent and it will I think it's just the beginning of more indoor and outdoor Indigenous spaces on campus. We want non-Indigenous U of T to engage in this space, to learn from this space. There will be uh, features that are connected with QR codes where you can get some of the knowledge and the the history of, of some of the things that are, for example, there's going to be a marker tree on this space and a lot of people might be like, why did you bend that tree like that? Which is very much um, prominent in Haudenosaunee culture to sort of direct people towards something. But it will be a period of time where we have um, a marker tree bent in a frame. <laughs> the, but these are elements that might be lost on some of, um, could be lost on anyone, frankly. Um, so we will have those opportunities for learning throughout the project as well. This is the meaningful kind of work I want to do. So I can't see myself not working with community um, and listening to community. And then I'm in a position where I can really advocate for students, faculty and um, staff elders. If there's things that aren't kind of sitting right in the institution that, um, can be part of my role where I can help to make sure that things are done in a really good way. And the Center for Indigenous Studies has so many fantastic instructors and profs and courses, and there's so much knowledge being transferred. It's amazing. Mm, So do you have an idea of when this project might get underway? So right now where it's in the very final design review stages, what that essentially means is that if it makes it to the U of T approval phase by a certain period of time in terms of construction. So these are all things that I'm not going to lie are completely outside of my scope of expertise. But if it, if we get it in there in time, it, it could start this spring. We It's really all about timing and when we can and how much other construction is happening, because I think a lot of people have, um, there's not been very many positives to the pandemic, but one thing is that construction can happen in places where it normally would have been slowed down. For example, on campus, um, where there's not very many students right now, a lot of construction can happen. So that means a lot of construction companies aren't available. So we are hopeful for this spring, but it's, we also know that it might not be. And if we don't get them in in the spring, Um, It'll be another year, but soon. All right, and we'll leave it at soon. And that is the voice of Shannon Simpson. She's the Director of Indigenous Initiatives and the Co-Chair of the Indigenous Landscape Project at the University of Toronto, which, as you hear, is getting underway soon. And uh, Shannon is also a member of the Alderville First Nation. It was a pleasure to have her on the show. And it's always a pleasure to have you listening to the show each and every day right here on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also listen on your favorite podcasting platforms. I'm your host, David Moses. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time right here 
on Element FM and Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.